Welcome to the Paramedia Podcast with Luca Dorado. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mario Media Podcast. Um, we have a, a fantastic episode for you today. Um, honestly, two of the, the giants in the field of, um, of Dharma Shastras and, and Hindu law and, and Dharma generally um, are joining us for um, an interview and conversation. We have with us uh, Professor Patrick Olivelli and Professor Donald Davis, both at the uh, University of Texas, Austin. Um, you know, I dare say they are the um, inheritors of P.V. Kane's uh, uh, vast uh, amount of work, and they've taken that up in, in earnest and done a fantastic job. Professors, both of you, welcome to the podcast and welcome to the program. Thank Thanks. So, um, you know, it's been a long time. I've been thinking about having you guys on, and, and I had to, like, go back and brush up on my readings of your works for the past 20 years um, and, you know, try to find time between work and family life. And it's been fascinating to do that. Um, and, and I have to say a large part is because, you know, I love your work, both of your works, because I think unlike what I find with a lot of other scholars, um, there's an objectivity you guys bring to the study of the texts and the study of, of uh, both the textual sources and the, the in fact, like the epigraphic evidence and, and evidence of, uh, you know, uh, later text and understanding that I, I feel like is missing today, the objectivity of trying to understand how this these texts would have played out in the past, instead of imagining the past uh, from 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 today as being the locus, you know, um, I do appreciate the, the, you know, honestly, the rigor and the, the scientific acumen you guys bring to the table. So so thank you for that amazing scholarship. Um, so let's start with um, uh, Professor Olivelli. You know, uh, Professor, how did you get into wanting to study Indology? You know, it, it's a, such an obscure field for most people. You know, how does that how does that come out to you? A series of uh, happy accidents. And would you like to expand on that a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was um, initially supposed to be working on Buddhism, believe it or not, and I went to Oxford to do some Buddhist work, uh, but ended up working for the Sanskrit um, honors program with Pali as a second language. <clears throat> then I came to the University of Pennsylvania but I thought I would do a PhD in Buddhist studies, but uh, the people who were doing that kind of work there were not that welcoming. And I ended up working with Professor Ludo Roche, yeah. who was my teacher there. And the rest is history, I say. So I went <laughs> in a somewhat different direction, uh, but that's okay. So uh, what's your background? I, I, I'm assuming you're from uh, the subcontinent of, of connection. I'm from Sri Lanka. Yeah. Sri Lanka, okay. So, so obviously the, that connection would make sense for the, the right. learning Pali and, and, and Buddhist studies. So, so before we get to what appealed to you about, you know, particularly about Dharma Shastras, Professor Davis, like what's your background? You know, I'm sure like exposure must've been coming first in college to this stuff and, as opposed to like, you know, uh, you know, lived life. 
So I came through um, study of India through anthropology, which I had studied as an undergraduate and uh, through anthropology got interested in India. Uh, my early anthropology professor, professors happened to work in India and uh, they introduced me to South India and uh, Tamil and Sanskrit and things like that. And um, I ended up taking Sanskrit one year as a junior in college and uh, decided that I was more interested in India than in anthropology. <laughs> and uh, so then I um, uh, was encouraged and was glad to start graduate school and ended up working under Dr. Olivelle and Dr. Larivier down at the University of Texas. So my story is also a little circuitous, um, but uh, yeah, um, also not, not so dissimilar, you know, happy accidents along the way. Well, I mean, both those are interesting paths and, and like, so I think it's interesting um, insofar as Dr. Olivelli, like what, what pulled you to study Dharma Shastras, you know, as opposed to trying to study, for example, like the Buddhist ideas of Dharma or the Buddhist social and uh, moral ethical framework. I, you touch upon parts of this in, in your work, but what drew you more to that, the, the, the Dharma Shastra tradition? Well, actually, my very first book, which is a very little tiny one, which I wrote as a <clears throat> thesis in, Ox <clears throat> in Oxford, was about the Buddhist uh, monastic uh, discipline and the early history of Buddhist monachism. But when I came to, uh, to America and started studying here, my first area of work was uh, Brahmanical texts on mm. the ascetical tradition, the sannyasa tradition which is sort of the parallel to the Buddhist tradition that way. Uh, and actually within the Brahmanical literature, uh, not all, but most of the Dharma Shastric work, um, most of the work on uh, asceticism, uh, on sannyasa, were part of the Dharma Shastric corpus. So for example, in many of the later <coughs> medieval texts, there will be a section called Moksha Kanda, yeah. And the Moksha Khanda deals with actually is, uh, is the life of a sannyasa. So there was, that was my first entree. So I started working on that and then gradually moved into sort of mainstream kind of Dharma Shastric work. When I, I <clears throat> was teaching first at Indiana University uh, for 17 years uh, in a religious studies department. But when I moved to Texas, uh, I had my colleague who was with me in graduate school too, uh, Richard Larivier, and uh, we together started working on a critical edition of the Manusmriti, the, the text mm -hmm. on Manu. Uh, and then, so gradually I moved into, into that area of editing, editing the major texts of the Dharma Shastri tradition. Yeah. So where did your commentary or, or your translations of the Upanishads fall in this, in this journey? Uh, that was a very, very, uh, again, happy accident. <laughs> <laughs> Never intended to do that. Uh, what I did was a while back in the late 1990s, I did a translation of a set of Upanishads called the Sannyasa Upanishads, mm -hmm. which were published by Oxford University Press in 20 in 1992, I think, something like that. And then the editor of the series in Oxford uh, of called the World's Classic Series, you know, this yeah. large, you know, 
world's clarity contacted me and said would you mind doing uh, translation of the main Upanishads and I initially said no because I had never done that work uh, but they were insistent and I said okay I'll take the take the winter break and try to translate a portion of a major Upanishad and I got got interested in it so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up doing a translation for them yeah right that's so my. Was that your first like real interaction with the Upanishads or had you read them before? Or? Well, of course, I've read them before yeah. because you do that in any case in your, sure. in your graduate work, in other work. But this was the first serious engagement with, with the ancient Upanishads that I had. And I had to deal with it in a, also in a critical way, not just translating, but, but looking at the, both the linguistic sides and the, and the editorial side and the various variants that are there. Uh, and then that produced my second volume, which, was, which contained the text and the translation in 1998 or something like that. that I translated. And my colleague, uh, Joel Brereton, who was here with me, uh, uh, was very helpful because he knows a lot more about the Upanishads and the Vedic literature than I do. And, uh, and he was very helpful. Uh, to me at that time of my life in the sure. 1990s when I was doing this translation yeah. And, and then so uh, Professor Davis, what drew you to studying like the law? Uh, I mean, because a lot of your work is really focused on you know the legal concepts within the, 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 the text um, as opposed to just purely Dharma as Dharma, there, it's, it, it's a little more uh, uh, pointed. So what drew you to that area? So I think that uh, I had aspirations once upon a time to go to law school and uh, you know do these kinds of things when I was an undergraduate, and somehow I think that the Dharma Shastra became the the substitute for that. But it was also it was also under the influence of some of my teachers. So um, we've already mentioned Professor Larivier a couple of times, and um, his his interest also shaded over oftentimes into um, using Dharma Shastra as a way to understand some portion of the history of law in India. And I, I'm drawn to areas of research that are somewhat understudied. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that um, it's, a, it's a kind of a cliche and one that we often work against in um, contemporary South Asian studies that India is a religious place, right? The empire of the spirit and this kind of thing. And so I'm always interested in ways of, of highlighting aspects of the history of India that are not not necessarily religious or at least not exclusively so. So the law became um, the, the, the sheer extent of legal thinking and jurisprudence in Sanskrit um, is so vast that um, it, it makes perfect sense to try to bring that um, sophisticated intellectual system to a wider audience. And uh, that is something that I have spent my time doing over the last 20 years or so, trying to bridge those worlds, the, the difficult and kind of technical uh, world of Sanskrit jurisprudence with uh, the wider um, questions in, in legal studies and legal theory. So for me, that's, that's the niche that I've uh, fallen into as a, as a scholar over you know, some time now. 
it, it was, you know, for me, it was interesting because in, in law school, I think that's when I first really got exposed to like thinkers like Hart and Bentham from a legal perspective, along with Mill, um, you know, and, and, and later on Dork and all these people. But it's fascinating to me that, you know, the positive law system they they put forth and then i started getting into your work about you know how indian law was kind of developed because large part no one none of us knew of what indian law was except for the modern colonial law and, and how that came about but what was law in ancient india and what was law in medieval india and how did they how do they deal with cases right because you read a text and you might you might read something about like a king had a court but like how did he have court what were the procedures what were the rules and regulations now i want to get into that a little bit more later but before we get into those ideas what is dharma right at the heart of this is like the most complex term that means so many things to so many people but and i think a lot of times people don't understand it because it is that complex um so what does dharma mean in a general context, and what does it mean in your area of study? So let's start with uh, uh, Professor Oliveville. Oh, um, what is Dharma? Um, uh, <clears throat> there is really no, no answer to that. Um, uh, dharma doesn't have a meaning. I knew that, you would say that, by the way. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Sorry? I knew you would say that. Uh, um, <laughs> dharma has a history uh, and not a meaning. Um, but then that is also wrong because dharma is not a person. Dharma is not a thing. Mm. It is a word and a concept that people use. Okay. So in a sense, the meaning of dharma is what people using that word at different times, different places, the meaning that they gave to the word. Sure. That is very diverse. Now, within the general Indian cultural history, dharma is not a four-legged animal walking down the street. You call that a dog or a cat, right? So yeah. in a sense, it has a certain physiognomy within the, but within that broad semantic range, uh, you find different people in different parts of, of India at different times, uh, using it in very different ways. Hmm? Uh, for example, in the philosophical tradition, dharma is viewed as a quality mm. of a thing. So blue is a dharma of a lotus. Right. A thing that if you tell people that blue is dharma, they would think that you are talking nonsense today. <laughs> right? Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is that the, the, the immense semantic range of this term um, and not only is it semantically diverse uh, in different religious and cultural situations, mm -hmm. but the same people will be using that in their writings with a wide variety of meanings. So right. that's something I never realized, right? So, and also it was from a religious perspective, a term that was a site of contention. Mm. People were trying to define it in different ways. So it was not a given. It is always being pulled one way or the other uh, by the different people. So for the Buddhists, for Ashoka, for the Jains, for the Mimamsakas, for the Advaitins, for the Smarthas, for the Pashupatas, they all will have taken this in their own different way, right? So that's, right. I think, the, 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 
the complexity of the of the of the text uh, of the of the term. Uh, I mean, long time ago, I edited a book actually on dharma uh, yeah. with about I don't know how many twenty odd uh, contributions, and there too, I think we were just scratching the surface. You know, I mean, sort of the major hits, so to speak, of, of dharma, right? <laughs> so, uh, rather than going into the nitty gritty. And uh, so, yeah, so in, in a sense, there is no, 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 no one answer to your question, what is dharma? Sure. I mean, like, dharma is used very, very rarely in the Vedas. And it's very like, you know, in, 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 and it means something different than it does in the Upanishads and it does in, in the uh, Itihasas. But, you know, like our modern conception of, outside of the colloquial, like, language of dharma, dharma as, Hindu, as a religion, you know, I, I, there's... I mean, there has to be a core, right? In what, like, more Mahabharata talks about dharma as being the foundation of, of society or whatever, or dharma sukshama. What I mean, what would bishma mean by dharma in that term, right? Like, it, it doesn't obviously mean dharma is blue. We're talking about a philosophical sense as an ontological quality of a thing or essence, but it means something specific within the dynamic that he's talking about. Like, so within the dharma shastra tradition, what does dharma mean? And, and maybe it does differ depending on whether you're talking about law or you're talking about uh, uh, the religious morality and religious rituals. So what what is the, the range within the Dharma Sastra tradition, semantic range? What does it mean in the tradition itself? Either of you can answer. It'd be fantastic. You want to take it up, Don? Uh, okay, I'll take a stab. Um, so I would say that the predominant um, Signification of dharma within the Dharma Shastra texts, um, something that I think PV Kane would um, agree with, is uh, Varnashrama dharma. So the 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 dharma that pertains to uh, social class and to um, stage of life or mode of life, ashrama, and it um, that is, I would think the I, I think the, the the center piece, the, the the central framework of dharma that is used within dharma shastra. It does not preclude, nor is it, it, it by any means the only sense of dharma that shows up in the texts. One can immediately point to um, sadharana dharma, which shows up the dharmas that are common to all people, regardless of varna or ashrama, for example. These would be. Uh, th these would tend to be things like um, common virtues, you know, sure. um, non-violence uh, non and uh, forbearance and patience and, uh, you know, things like this that we want everybody to have. It might manifest differently in different communities, which is um, a way of circling the uh, sadharana dharmas back to um, people's different contextual situations in life. Um, the, the, one of the interesting things, and I was just speaking with a student this morning who's working on a dissertation about the Mahabharata, is that the, the sukshmata, the subtleness of dharma, in, uh, which is a perennial theme in the Mahabharata, mm -hmm. um, is, well, dharma is somewhat less sukshma, less subtle in <laughs> both the Ramayana and the Dharma Shastras, I think. Um, so the Mahabharata is the the the, the, the location more than any other in which the, the difficulties and challenges of, of really coming to a kind of firm moral conclusion about any given action um, plays out more beautifully and more um, 
you know, complexly than in any other source that I'm aware of. Um, when you think about the Dharma Shastras in a, in a more narrow sense, the, the drive toward resolution and solution is stronger, such that um, in principle, at least, one should be able to overcome doubts, one should be, should be able to overcome conflicts and come to some kind of solution that is, um, according to the, the procedures outlined in the texts, um, definitive and not subtle at that point, <laughs> but sure. clear. Sure. I, it, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a term I struggle with relatively often, whether, especially like within the Mahabharata itself, there's this, I, I, it seems to be an internal struggle within the text itself between, for example, Bhishma's entire vision of what, what Dharma means versus Yudhishthira's. You know, I, I think Alf uh, Hiddlebittle, again, I, I messed up his last name, but he does a great job in his book on um, the education of a Dharma king about laying some of this stuff out. But I, I find it fascinating that, that the text itself, it doesn't have, really have a conclusion as to this, where I feel like Dharma Shastras on the whole, whether individually or the Dharma Sutras, tend to have a more, I would say, non, non-contradictory view on what Dharma is within text. Although there is contradictions, it seems to be a little more linear in terms of its understanding. Um, but maybe I'm wrong here. It's like, you know, so go ahead, uh, 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 Professor. Well, I mean, it's, uh, there are two different genres of literature. One is a storytelling, which brings out the complexities of human life. Sure. Um, Motilal, um, Bimal Matilal wrote Mm -hmm. several articles and books on the moral dilemmas of the the Mahabharata. And that's the dilemma, right? At the beginning of the the Bhagavad Gita, you find the moral dilemma of Arjuna being played out, right? At the end of of the Mahabharata war, you find a similar crisis of conscience right. of Yudhishthira coming up, right? So those are the sort of those the beautifully narratively constructed human dilemmas where there are no easy solutions to what is right and what is wrong, kind of. Right. The Shastra, on the other hand, is a much more cut and dried kind of thing that they're putting, right? Shastra is a, uh, the very term Shastra comes from a Sanskrit term, which means uh, instrument of instruction. So in a sense, it's a classroom textbook, which cannot have a lot of moral ambiguity. (laughs) You have to present present the truth, right? So it it, it is much less. But if you take a diachronic view Mm -hmm. of Dharma Shastra, you find the complexity coming out. Um, For example, take a simple thing like Niyoga, the levirate, right? Whether you can, your wife can, you know, produce children for you from other men. Yeah. Uh, which, which is a completely, you know, throughout history, uh, controversial thing. Um, and, uh, and, and, and things like, uh, like uh, inheritance, mm-hmm. uh, whether the, the, the primogeniture, the, the oldest son taking the entire estate, sure. or whether it is divided among everybody. That, that, I mean, that, was, that is not as contentious as the other one, but it was there from the sure. beginning. So those are the kinds of things that you find even in the Shastra, right? When you get to the early ones, I'm working right now on the transcription uh, searchable of uh, Dharadatta's commentary on the Apastamba Dharma Sutra, which is the oldest 
right. Dharma Sutra we have, probably going back to about the third century before Christ, uh, around the same time as Ashoka, by the way. Right. Sure. And almost every page or every other page, you find the words AK coming in. Some people say this without any attempt most of the time to refute that. Right. We are talking then about Apastamba bringing out a rich diversity of opinion with regard to what is Dharma within right. the milieu in which he's constructing this particular text. Right. Some people say this, and sometimes he even you, uh, uses names, like Haradatta says this, uh, uh, and uh, Pushkarashadi says this. So, the, the, so they have this complexity coming out, which are generally eliminated in later Dharma texts, right. such as Manu. Manu could hardly give this complexity because he's the son of the creator God, who's laying down the whole damn thing <laughs> to you. Right? He can't say, well, there are, there are differences of opinion coming here, right? So you, you find the, the shift from, from basically, uh, you know, the, the complexity of, of scholarly debate to this uniformity later on. So there is within the Shastric literature too, uh, uh, quite a lot of complexity as to what is Dharma, but not in the same way as the Mahabharata, no. So, I mean, but, but we find that complexity, even though it, it might not be there in individual Dharma Shastras, it comes back on in commentaries and probably even Nibandhas, right? When when you have the, the, the tradition talking about that, doesn't the complexity of the different thinkers, whether it's Manu, Yagnyavalka, Vishnu, or whoever else come into play in, 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 in that world? Right, um, I mean, at a particular time in Dharma Shastras scholarship, I mean, to have the traditional scholarship, yeah. The, the, the idea came that all Dharma Shastra, the Smritis, mm -hmm. say the same thing. Yeah. So there cannot be contradictions. So if there seems to be a contradiction, that's our problem. We are not understanding the thing. Right? So they are trying to explain it to others. So that's one of the tasks of the Dibandakara or the, or the person's writing commentary. Right? right. Uh, but then again, we have within that, uh, somebody is saying, Vijnaneshwara says this, but that is stupid, right? <laughs> but uh, while well, this is, so there is that complexity coming in of, of commentators, major sure. commentators disagreeing with each other as to how to interpret. But there is always at the back of their mind that there is only one correct way to interpret it. Uh, they don't go at the text like we do today, Saying sure. that, of course, there are contradictions because one was written a thousand years before the other. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, there has to be differences. They are not talking, they're talking about all these things on a on a sort of a flat historical plane, right? They're all contemporaneous. They're all the same synchronic texts. But I, I know some later, like later thinkers, you know, or like for example, Prashara in his uh in his uh Smriti, you know, you know, he talks about his being applied for. Kali Yuga versus everyone else was was like Satya Yuga or, or whatever you got you know they're writing in. So there must have been some understanding that there were some older texts, some newer texts, and then some middling texts, right? So if, before we get into that, I mean, why don't we can we discuss maybe the history of the the Dharmashastra tradition? May, you know, like what the it starts where it started and where where it comes up to, you know, Professor. Well, Davis? There, yeah, sure. There are. Um... 
uh, well, three, four layers uh, textual. I mean, I think we should start by saying that when we're speaking of Dharma Shastras, we're speaking of textual traditions preserved by an intellectual tradition, mm -hmm. um, not, um, not text used in courts of law necessarily to um, and you know known by a, a wide swath of society. So we have to we have to keep that um, elite nature of the text in mind first of all. But we have a we have a strata of texts called the Dharma Sutras, um, probably dating from around the third century BC to first couple of centuries of the Common Era, and um, the a shift occurs with the uh, creation and the and um, solidification of the text that we know as the Manusmriti or the Manava Dharma Shastra, um, in which uh, a lot of the materials that, was, that were present in the Dharma Sutra traditions, especially those pertaining to household rituals and um, things surrounding the life of, 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 especially of a Brahmin household, mm -hmm. get supplemented with a wider array of information pertaining to kingship and to the state. So Manu, essentially brings the worlds of the household and the state together. And that gives the, the Dharma Shastra a new scope. Um, from that time on then, uh, what we would call the law becomes a, a, a really important part of the Dharma Shastra tradition that gets expanded and grows over time. So then we have the period that we usually call the Smithy period, um, textually speaking, that goes from about Manu and really continues on for, for quite a long time, but at least a thousand years, let's say, mm -hmm. from second century AD CE to, you know, a thousand CE, something like that. And um, this is where the names of other sages are used to grace uh, various collections of wisdom. Um, and some of them are kind of unitaskers like the Narada Smithy that is really only about um, Vyavahara legal procedure. Some of them, um, are about even was just one aspect. Some of the minor ones are about just one thing. So Pitamaha is only about ordeals more or less, for example. Um, but other texts are more comprehensive in scope. Um, some texts are known to us only through citations that occur in later uh, literature. But all along the way, we have to suspect that there were um, people who were commenting and teaching and communicating these texts to other students. Uh, but at a certain point in time, probably seventh or eighth century, we start to get um, written commentaries on these earlier uh, smritis and sutras. Mm -hmm. And the commentarial literature then gives us another layer of, of, of interest and also another historical layer to examine. So the commentaries would normally take a text as it had been established and comment verse by verse on, on those. Um, the next major shift then is, is to take, um, instead of being interested in commenting on a traditional text in, 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 a, in order, you look at things thematically and you select or topically and you select the topic that you're interested in and try to gather all of the different um, uh, Shastra authors on a particular topic such as inheritance or um, pilgrimage or gift giving or some other topic and you create what we would call a digest or an anthology, a nibanda, um, to try to distill all of the collected wisdom of the tradition in one place. Those are roughly sort of four layers that we tend to speak of. The first nibanda we have is from the 12th century. This is the Kritya Kalpataru of Lakshmidra. Um, 
and but after this time, the Nibanda genre and the commentarial genres really, and they kind of have always blended. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of commentaries are half Nibandas and a lot of Nibandas are half commentaries. So um, that distinction is doesn't be isn't one that we want to uh, draw too sharply. Um, but what you can see is this development. There's a, there's an ex expanding array of topics considered at each level. Mm -hmm. um, but also some reflections on how best to present the tradition to oneself and perhaps to others, especially I would think uh, patrons who are paying for the for, for all of this intellectual work. So that's a very brief summary. Sure. I, I, thank you so much for that. So what would be what would be like the difference outside of like, um, you know, sutra style versus uh, prose style that you get in Manu? What is the real difference of a Dharma Sutra and a Dharma Shastra? And, and, and what makes that line occur? I mean, is it just the, 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 the style of writing or is there something more to it? I think um, much has been made about the distinction between Dharma Shastra and Dharma Sutra, where none exist. Okay. There's no distinction between the two. In fact, if you look at the manuscripts, many of the so-called Dharma Sutras are called Dharma Shastra. What we have here is a Sutra style of writing. Mm -hmm. And therefore it's a genre difference, not a content difference. Um, so when you say Dharma Shastra, it includes both the right. metrical smritis as well as the prose sutras. When you say Dharma Sutra, we are referring to a totally different thing, which means Dharma texts that are written in Sutra style. So okay. You see what I'm trying to say? Get the, yeah, get yeah, the, yeah. yeah. Right. So Dharma Shastra is a much broader concept. Yeah, it's universal. It, it is universal. It takes into account everything. Dharma Sutra is a, is a subsection right. of that. Yeah, right. Uh, with regard to the, to the content, as Don said, uh, it is not because one is sutra and one is verse, it is because at a particular time in Indian Dharma Shastra history, uh, somebody decided to include a wide array of topics that were not there, at least with equal prominence in the earlier literature, such as the state and the king, right? Sure. So that was brought in so that the Arthra Shastric tradition, which had dealt with those topics in the earlier, gradually disappeared or it was absorbed into the Dharma Shastri, right? Right. Okay. I mean, so so something like Manu, right? You know, Manu was probably what codified roughly 200 to 400 BC, I mean, CE, yeah. uh, roughly, right? So, but like in the text like Mahabharata, which probably is like, you know, according to Alf, was somewhere between first or second century BC, there's still citations of Manu, right? So was Manu at that time probably being developed and were there parallel traditions of Manu or, you know, how, how, how do we think about how a, a text like Manu would have been developed over time? Well, Manu is not cited by the Mahabharata. Mahabharata cites verses, yes. or has verses that yeah. have in common also the, uh, the I see. Manu. So it is possible, it is possible that both are drawing from common sources. So one doesn't have to be before the other. Sure. That's one way of looking at it. And second is that uh, Manu, at least I think, and this is not accepted by everybody, I think it was a single composition. 
uh, it certainly uh, continued to have changes and additions and etc. Uh, but it was put together by, by one person, uh, probably around the second century. Uh, see, uh, mostly because it has prominently gold coins as a as a as a currency, and gold coins came into India with the Kushaners around the end of the first century, right? Yeah. So that's that's what we have. Uh, Mahabharata, on the other hand, had had a much more uh, you know flexible, uh, fungible, textual tradition with additions and subtraction going on for much longer period of time. So the influences, if there were any from Manu to Mahabharata could have happened all the way into the Gupta period, like Fitzgerald right. thinks that the final edition of the Mahabharata was put together during the Gupta period. So right. there's a couple of centuries there where, where it could have happened. So how do we think about like, you know, in the various, uh, the Dharmasmitis, whether it's Manu or Yagyavalka, kind of, are they talking to each other in some sense? Are they, are they responding to each other? Um, and, and where do they play out? Like, you, you know, I imagine, like, like if, if you're indicating that Manu was probably written by a singular author, it must have been written by a singular author in a certain location, a certain milieu, in a certain cultural setting. So, and Yagyavalka probably written in, in some other place with somebody else with some other setting. So how do they, how do they juxtapose each other in this sense? And how do they converse with each other? Not with each other, but Janavalkya is responding to Manu. Right. Okay, Manu was much earlier. So uh, clear, Janavalkya, uh, uh, in fact, I, in my latest edition of this, I tried to show how uh, one verse of Janavalkya is actually a abbreviation of several verses of Manu. So you can see the, the, the connections going. And, um, and he at one point says, Manu at one point says that uh, um, the levirate, the, the mm -hmm. yoga uh, should be done at another place. He says, no, and he was trying to, uh, to... so there was, there was that kind of a connection. Clearly the guy who wrote Yanyavalkya had Manu before him. Right. Uh, and he knew that text quite well. Yeah. Uh, Don, you may want to add something. Uh, I just, I, the only thing I would say is that, that um... You can you can definitely see a lot of intertextual linkages between the various Dhammashastras. So sometimes you'll get whole passages that are repeated from Smriti to Smriti, but attributed to different authors. Um, so sometimes the attributions are a little bit um, unclear. Um, you can, but you can also see that the, that some texts start to make original contributions. So uh, the Smriti is a text that introduces a whole variety of new. Um, details and, and specifications regarding legal procedure and the various uh, Vyavahadapa, that's the titles of law. That's, a, that's, we don't find those in other texts. So that's something new, but parts of what Narada has done um, were already there. Um, moreover, it, it was, it's quite impressive and um, very telling that Manu very quickly became the gold standard within the tradition. So that other texts will constantly say, um, Whatever Manu says is right, and and if you know, <laughs> um, we're, we we don't what we say here is not going to deviate from that, but only elaborate kind of. So there's a way in which the tradition conceived of itself too as elaborating upon a standard that was set by Manu, but even Manu, right, as as um, Dr. Olivelle has shown multiple times, 
um, you know, distills information that existed before him. So the opening sutras of Gautama are, you know, Vedo uh, Dharma Mulam, right? Second verse is Tadvidang Smritvishile. This is exactly the same as another verse, but put in, in you know, you add one word, Akilo, into the thing to make it a shloka, right? Vedo yeah. Kilo Dharma Mulam. That then, and, and, but it's the same passage, right? Um, so you can, so Manu had Gautama before him. It's, you know, it, it is that, or something like that, or this right. was so well known that everybody, that they're drawing from a, a common source. So that, that, I think the construction of Dharma Shastras is a combination of um, reworking old material, uh -huh. um, incorporation of new material that also probably pre-existed the author. So that would, that would include something like the incorporation of the Artha Shastra, a, a, right. you know, a new kind of um, topical array of material, and then original contributions of, of a particular author. So three basic inputs is how I usually think about it. One other thing, if I may, uh, to add to what Don said, is the new vocabulary that is often introduced. Uh, for example, uh, Manu doesn't have a word for a document, uh, mostly because it was not an important thing in court cases. Huh. There were always live witnesses. But by the time Yanyavalkya comes, documents become central to uh, to evidence in a court. So he has the word lake here, Lekha. which is the, for the first time in the Dharmashastra history, the term is used. Uh, then you have ordeals, uh, uh, divya, uh, which is used for the first time by Yanyavalkya and not used by, by Manu, who uses the word shabata, which is a term that he used for also um, oaths. oaths uh, yeah. So, uh, so there, there's a, there's a, new technical vocabulary being introduced and Narada of course takes it a step further into in the in the in this uh, uh, technical vocabulary uh, being used. So how far do we know if these uh, early Dharma Shastras uh, or Sutras or or later the prose was was this an oral tradition of some sort or was it was it actually foundationally a written tradition? Um, and do we have any sense of that? Hmm. I, I mean, you know, orality is such a big part of, of the, you know, the, the transmission of texts in India and the versification of the early metrical smritis um, has to be in part a, a way of reciting them in a, in a familiar format. Um, mm -hmm. But ditto the concision of a sutra style allows you to assimilate a lot of information rapidly. So both are probably related to some kind of oral transmission. Um, at the same time, both the sheer length of some of these texts yeah. and, the, um, um, and their, their open texture as opposed to the Vedas. That is to say, the, the, the idea that um, the precise recitation of a, you know, of a, of a Vedic sukta is such that, that it, it has to be transmitted in a pristine form Whereas the um, uh, you know a Dharma Shastra text is artamula, um, right? It's it's grounded yeah. in meaning, and so um, you want you want to get the uh, you want to get the meaning across, even if you have to add a clarification word here or there. So I think orality was certainly part of it, but um, as the as time goes on, um, written sources become uh, really important. 
I, 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 Dr. Olivelle should speak to whether he thinks the texts were originally composed with the help of writing or not. Yes. That's, of course, difficult to tell, but I think there is a, a false dichotomy often put in the very question you ask. Sure. Is it oral or written? In India, it is both oral and written most of the time, right? So, so that's the other one thing to remember in India. But <clears throat> um, whether these were originally written documents or, or not, uh, it really depends on the time, I think. Uh, many of the earlier ones could have been composed orally, uh, but clearly by the time of Manu and later, it was much more of a, of a, of a written tradition, I think. Um, and, um, <clears throat> but the reality of this tradition is, uh, I'm just looking at Haradatta's commentary, and he gives a lot, he's a very good commentator, very sensitive reader, and he gives a lot of variant readings, what we would call variant readings, right? But he says, but the way he says that is, it is recited this way here. <laughs> so he's referring to an oral tradition of the Apastamba yeah. that is someplace being recited. Uh, and, uh, and, and, that is, and the very term often used in India uh, for radio is pata. Well, the pata is a reading, yeah. meaning oral reading, not visual <laughs> reading. <right? laughs> so you see that, uh, that the very words show the orality of this tradition. Yeah. So, so moving on to like the next topic, you know, what are, how do we, you know, we talked briefly about Dharma earlier, how within the, the Shastra tradition, how can we know Dharma? Like what are the means to know and understand Dharma from, you know, the Dharma Shastra tradition? Do we have uh, some rules on that or guides as better stated? Can I recite the verse that I started before? <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> well, Dharma, uh, I mean, Veda Kilam. <laughs> Vedo Kilo Dharma Mulam Tadvidangcha Smriti Shile Acharas Chaiva Sadhunang Atmanas Tushterevacha. This is Manu 2 6. So, this is, the, this is one of the standard classic um, expositions of the various Brahmanas or sources of Dharma. Yeah. Um, so that Veda is always uh, the, the first, right? Um, but Veda becomes tricky and for reasons that we can talk about. Then uh, the, the Smriti and the Shila, the, the recollection and the, the character of those who know it. Yeah. Uh, that is to say, of those who know the Veda. Then Acharas Jaiva Sadhunang, the, the, the behavior of good men. Yes, the customary practice of good men. Um, and finally, then that which pleases a person, Atmanas Tushtir. Uh, literally, that which pleases oneself. Um, but all of these, mm, all of these sources, all of these pramanas, were subjected to hedgings and qualifications and sure. descriptions and so forth. And so, but these they provide the framework usually of the the three or four sources of dharma. So, you know, I've written a little bit about atma tushti and right. um, the limitations that were placed around that concept, precisely because it it on first glance, it reads like, and, and whatever you feel like doing, right? <laughs> Atmanas tushti, that would be a reasonable translation of that in some, in some context, but that can't be what they meant, right? Right. So what they meant is that, you know, um, either it is the, the internal satisfaction, what we would call the conviction that what you're doing is right, 
but that what, but, but really they would say, oh, but not just anybody. Uh, so, cause a thief might feel that, well, this is right. You right. Know, uh, but it has to be also a good person who is a knower of the Veda um, or a person who is of, of extraordinary character. Or they say, it means that for things in life that don't really matter that much, you can do whatever you want. So which way, you know, uh, uh, which, you know, do, um, I'm trying to think of an Indian example, but I was going to say, you know, do you use a fork or a spoon, but that doesn't really right. work. Um, but, you know, what side of what side of the head do you wear your top knot? Or which direction do you tie your sari? Right. Or, or, no, you know, so, so there are, that matters, right? There's usually reasons why you do that, but it's it's somewhat arbitrary according to the tradition. And because I find it matter of dharma. Interesting. Like if, if anyone reads the dharma, any of the dharma shastras, they're incredibly onerous, right? Like sometimes it'd be like <laughs> lightning strikes, and and you have to go take a shower. You can't chant the Vedas. So a donkey walks by. It's just it's 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 almost as if like it, especially for the I guess the brahmanas who are who it's mostly talking to it's very very like anything in life that's not perfected it's like this you have to do some prize with them right it's 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 your entire life is devoted to this so it almost seemed very difficult for me to think of where does atmatushti here work right like it, it's what is the scope here and it, are they talking when he talked about atmatushti is he talking about like sadhana like people everyday people or are you talking about brahmanas in particular or or a particular class of people. I mean, so I, I get jumbled up with some of this stuff. Yeah, for that particular concept. Yeah, that's right. So it's, you know, the, the tradition itself ends up defining most of the parameters of, of things. But as a technical matter, Atmatushti is either a, a guide that comes from the behavior of really famous, extraordinary people or something that pertains only to trivial matters where it doesn't matter how you do it. Um, right. And so that drastically narrows the scope of what it is, which is why only Manu and Yagnavalkya mentioned this source and then they give it up. Nobody else talks about it. Right, so, so are these hierarchies? Is it first, you know, Veda and then it's uh, um, the, you know, and then the Shila and then Achara and then Atmatushti? So if, if none of those three other sources work, then, then Atmatushti is allowed is, is my guess. Exactly. Yeah. This is a, is, I mean, Dharma Brahmani is a very complex thing. Yeah. I don't know whether you saw my Dharma Reader text. Yes, book. I have it. So in my first part of it is Dharma Brahmana, trying to see it across time diachronically. <coughs> so it is a very, very difficult, uh, difficult um, area, very complex area, because the Mimangsakas come on the one hand, giving, giving the most conservative thing. Veda yeah. is the only, right? Yeah. And, and you find that, you know, people like Medatiti comes and says, oh, shit, we can't do I'm sorry. I should have <laughs> no, you can cuss. <laughs> you I, can, I cuss all the time. It's fine. Delete <laughs> that. <laughs> we, we can't really do that because, you know, you go to the Raja Dharma or the Vyavahara, right? You can't find any Vedic text to support these things, right? <laughs> so so there, are, there, are, there are real problems there, I think. But one thing when we are dealing with the Dharma Pramana within the Brahmanical tradition, one has to look at the subtexts of them. What are they, whom are they talking against? Mm. Because there were other people also who said, this is the Dharma Brahmana. The Buddhists right. came and said, Buddha Vachana. So the words yeah. of the Buddha is Dharma Brahmana. So there are all these 
the other ways of contextualizing what they are saying, because uh, they were, what I tried to say is that when you go to, to uh, Apastamba, uh, he says, uh, at the very beginning, he doesn't say anything about the Veda. He says, um, Samaya Acharikan Dharman Vyakyas Yama Dharmanya Samaya Pramanam. That's what I start with. So, uh, Dharma is the agreement, uh, uh, the Achara that is yeah. agreed upon by people. By whom? By people who know the Dharma, bit of a tautology there. Then at the end, he come, comes and says, Vedascha, right? As also the Veda. So we are talking about what they're trying to show here is that community standards, especially community standards of authoritative Brahmanical communities become the criterion for the Dharma, as opposed to the Buddhists who right. are saying the authority is the one day a guy sat under a tree and yeah. you know, got this whole damn thing, you know, and, <laughs> and here is the Dharma, right? He says, no, 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 that doesn't work, right? That doesn't work. The, the charismatic, you know, uh, experiential thing that there are. So in a sense, there are all these other sides to the Brahmanical take on, on, on this matter. So, so on that point, like, so even when we talk about, you know, uh, as Vedamulam, as the, the, the root of the Vedas, but Vedas don't have much to say on a lot of this stuff. So when, when they're talking about using the Veda as like the first source, what are they trying to mean here? What are they trying to say? Because it doesn't say much about how people should do a certain thing. I mean, maybe the, the, the Brahmanas have some uh, notions here and there, and Upanishads have some pieces here and there, but like it doesn't really give rules on how to live. It's, it's as good as Vedic mathematics and physics. <laughs> <laughs> so Veda becomes a, just a, a term. Uh, some, yeah. It's like you know, today Christians would say biblical theology, right? Sure. I mean, much of it may not come from the Bible at all. Right. right. Um, so that that's the, the the side of it. I think is uh, is uh, and and when you go into the Mimamsa and Medatiti, they find very difficult to maintain. So there's this whole theory of a lost Veda. The Veda, some of the Vedas that contain these things are lost. And they yeah, they refer to that, don't they? Huh? They refer to that sometimes where yeah, if yeah, we're saying yeah. something, we're actually referring to a lost Veda that doesn't exist anymore. Right, exactly. Right. right. There are various ways of, of trying to say that what is found in the Achara and the Smriti are actually based on the Veda. And then yeah. they have the concept what is called Anumita Shruti. Mm -hmm. The Shruti, the, the Veda, that is inferred to have existed as opposed to Pratyaksha Shruti, the, the Veda that we actually find recited. Right. right yeah. So there are always various uh, hermeneutical gymnastics that's been performed in order to come up with this. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's very similar to the enshrinement of the uh, natural rights, right, in, in, in Western parlance, where there's somewhere, there's natural rights exist somewhere, and then we kind of like work backwards to develop it. Um, so it, it, it's fascinating because when, uh, if the Vedas don't talk about it, then they really are talking about what a group of people decide is going to be good behavior and it's been good behavior for generations or, or generational. Would that be fair to say like, but they also have a sense of like, there's seems to be some diversity. Well, this might be good for the Brahmanas. There's different 
like rules, but they don't really talk about many of the rules for other communities. It's very, it's very like superficial. It's, it's kind of glossed over, right? Like, you know, especially when you get to the uh, the conversation about shudras, it's just service of others. There's no, there's not much talked about, but so how, how did these communities, I guess it goes to this question is, did the Shastas reflect real world or were they just kind of the world of imagination or perfected world that the authors wanted to have? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, the, this is the perennial dilemma that we deal with in, in our field, which is trying to relate the, um, what, what I would call the ideological project of the Dharmashastra tradition writ large. And I, I wouldn't say that that is, is univocal or a, sing, a, you know, a singular agenda, but I think each author had some kind of ideological drive, a motivation grounded in what they wanted to achieve through their text that, um, that then um, only partially captures. And in some ways, because of the restrictions of the tradition, only, only rarely touches the ground, so to speak. Yeah. And so the historical realities that existed at the time are very difficult to see within the texts. Um, typically, we look either for corroborative evidence external to the texts that um, we can use to try to, to match the, the, the sources and do our best to come up with a plausible history, or we read the text transgressively to look for cues and hints of places where a reference to something like gold gives, tells, tells us that it must be after a certain date or it must right. be of this particular time period. Um, or if we have a reference to cross cousin marriage, boom, we know this is a South Indian author. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Things like this. Um, and so there's, there, there are tip, you know, things that we encounter frequently that, that give it our tells or, or cues that we would uh, rely upon. Um, one of the, the fun parts about what Dr. Olivelle and I do is precisely to look for those places where, hey, I found something interesting here that I don't think people had seen before about, right. about it, the history. So one of my favorite pieces that Dr. Olivelle wrote um, not, not so long ago was about um, what kind of furniture gets mentioned in the old texts. And what does that tell us about the, about the social, uh, the economic status of the people involved? Right. And the argument was that these were people, people were pretty well off because there's a lot of talk of beds and chairs and, you know, things like this. And, you know, only he would notice what, you know, references to furniture. Um, but it's a it's a tell, right? It's a way of right. looking at um, the kind of implied audience and um, implied authorship of, um, of of these sorts of texts. But it's such a difficult um, thing to, to relate any given text to a particular social context. And it's only very rarely that we can, that we can do that. As, as we get closer to our own time, some texts become easier to, um, right. to connect to places and times, but especially for the early material, it's quite challenging. Every now and then you get a clue, geographical clue, for example. Dharma uh -huh. Shastra um, begins with Yanyavalkya being, having some kind of a samadhi <laughs> in Mithila. So we have now put a geographical location there, yeah. right? Now it may not have been written in Mithila, but at least the, the author is thinking about Mithila as right. the location of his text, right? Um, in, the, in the Dharma Shastra of Vishnu, uh, there is a description 
of Mother Earth standing in between the feet of Vishnu. Mm -hmm. And this is found only in the iconography of Kashmir. Nowhere yes. else. So now we can look at, oh, this is a text coming from Kashmir. So there are certain clues like that where we can do that. But I think the, the, the discussion, the debate about Dharma Shastras, was it you know, descriptive or normative yeah. or prescriptive, or whether the laws in Dharma Shastra were actually enacted in a court of law. I think it's somewhat misplaced because I think any text, especially ancient text, would have a similar issue, right? We can't take it as fact. We can't take yesterday's New York Times as telling us facts sure. about America, right? It is through the lens provided by various people, right? So it is, it's somewhat different. Uh, our, our friend uh, Stephanie Jamison has used the term reading between the lines. She's uh -huh. working on women's histories, but women's are often not there in yeah. text. So how do you find women in text, right? So you have to go to what is not said, the so-called silences I talk about, rather than what they say, right? Sure. Um, uh, so there, there, are, there are various ways in which we can look at it. If you look at Varna, we talked about, about Varna, right? So uh, is Varna a descriptive thing in the Dharma Shastras or a prescriptive thing? Are they talking about real world in yeah. which there are four Varnas? Or are they talking about a Brahminical ideology which required there to be four runners, but nobody else knew about it. <laughs> well, right? I mean, yeah, and, and this is, but, but, but the thing is like, <clears throat> a lot of what you're saying, you know, at an intellectual level, it, it's fascinating, it's, it's amazing, and I love to explore that. But there's also the real world impact we have in, in politics you see, in conversations. So there's, I mean, the work you do is very important because it can elucidate what is, potentially fiction what is potentially fact and then kind of like what in between we, we can't know so like for example like you know when we talk about a varna system of of when the texts they have seems to be a very built-in system of like this is how things function there's these these stratas here's how people should function here's how it should roll but it appears to me i mean when you look at both the any evidence we get from archaeology or or you know um <clears throat> epigraphs or so on, is the world was a little more chaotic than that. I mean, vastly more chaotic. I mean, how would how would that have ever functioned for any sort of ruler to try to try to curtail traders coming in from across different places across the world, movements of people that you don't know what what Jati or Varna they belong to, or you know, how do they fit into like that it it it, it's, it, it doesn't seem to fit the world of reality. Is, is is my my is my thought but you know maybe the i mean you guys have different opinions on this uh i i think every every application of a limited system along the lines of varna applied to a, a society is always a fiction that is is being deployed for some kind of purpose that purpose right. might be political it might be religious um, if we think about the, the, you know, the limited categories of race that we have to check off in the United States on sure. various forms, um, that hardly captures the realities of, of people's racial backgrounds and no. um, identities and so forth. So we have to interpret the Varna categorization, I think, in similar, in similar kinds of terms. Um, it, 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 was, it was almost certainly never uh, 
not almost certainly, I would say certainly never a, um, a reality of four, of, of four groupings, but always an afterthought, a kind of sociological classification of broad groupings, but a sociological classification that, that came with an, with an undercurrent of, of, agen of agenda or, sure. you know, of, of especially privileging um, Brahmins on the one hand and, and Kshatriyas on the other with the Vaishyas and Shudras occupying a very small space in the, as uh, almost afterthoughts in the, in the scheme. So the question then becomes to, you know, who used this system and for what purposes, right? right? And how then do the, the myriad jatis um, that show up in, um, you know, various sources from early on um, fit or don't fit into this system? Um, and so it was part of certain kinds of Brahminical agendas to reclassify jatis under one, one of these four. Um, but this was also part of a, um, a deliberate move, a conscious move to simplify and make everything work within the fourfold scheme that, as Dr. Olivelle said, it had to axiomatically from the beginning. So okay. you make the world fit the reality that you want it to, 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 to fit. And, and, I mean, the and, question okay. we can ask, the question we can ask at any time in Indian history is how many people living in India at that time in a geographical area identified themselves, oh, I'm a Vaishya. Yeah. I'm a Shudra. Yeah. I would say very little, if any. Uh, I've been working for a long time now on Ashoka and his yeah. inscriptions. The word Varna, the word Shudra, the word Vaishya, word Kshatriya, does not occur, right? So for Ashoka, Varna and the Varna designations did not exist. Or if it did, it didn't play any significant role in his own thinking, right? Then we come thousand years later to Andhra Pradesh. Mm -hmm. Oh, this Cynthia Talbot. Our friend uh, uh, Cynthia Talbot has worked on that, right? Inscriptions, yeah. no one, has ever identified themselves there in the scripture as one of these four. They were always identified themselves in various kinds of, of titles, right? Uh, uh, nothing to do with this. Now, there could well have been these four, you know, existing right. in some area of consciousness, right? But they were not the ones dominating ones with regard to one's own self-identity. Sure, sure. You know, a part of that, you know, like, I think this is also touching upon like something, I, um, you know, uh, Dr. Davis, you've written is about the corporate groups, right? The, the various, you know, these, these guilds, I mean, I guess guilds, maybe, or something of that nature. But obviously, they had a lot of political power, social power within the area, uh, wherever they were. I, I couldn't imagine that they felt in, a, in unable to do things in the society they're in based upon Brahminical ideas of what they could or couldn't do. So there has to be some like level of where this these these texts occupied and where they didn't occupy. And I think it seems to be like it for my my assessment is it seems like it occupies the minds of a lot of Brahmin thinkers, but but it maybe influenced some Shatriya kings I don't or some rulers at some level, but I don't know what, what that would have been, right? Because like, I don't think we could talk, there's any kingdom that we know for certain or 
time period in India where a king followed Manava Dharma Shastra and tried to set out the rules. I, I just don't know if that existed. No, there were some kings who dabbled in this, like, you know, King Boja yeah. was supposed to have written on, on, on Dharma Shastra. Uh, and 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 uh, Lakshmi Dara, you know, talks about his patron. Yeah. Um, and Aparaka himself was a king, or somebody who wrote for him right? <laughs> and gave right. him the authorship of this book. So there are there are some things like that, but clearly they are they are an elite minority. Yeah. Um, and um, the the question to ask is, yeah, what you said just now. For whom are these books written, and who's reading them? Right, and and so that's this is scholastic tradition, uh, but very important in Indian history. Uh, that's why the the literature is important because there's the longest right, longest literary tradition in India. Yeah, continuous, unbroken, um, and these people knew each other. They were talking to each other, so they, that this is a literary tradition that was that was nurturing itself over the years. Yeah. So, so well, however fictional the, the categorization of something like Varna is, if, if things are repeated often enough, right. they become influential, right? And that I think is part of what happens um, is that the, 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 the sheer repetition of this and the expansion, thanks to um, a lot of scholar, uh, you know, academic scholarship and now politicians and so forth, the repetition of the Varna ideology I think has a way of, of making it seem real. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, that's, that's tricky. And the reason I ask is like, when we talk about like, you know, in the past 500 years of say like the race theory in the West, it becomes codified into law at some level. So did we, do we have any sense if Varna was ever codified before the colonial era and the colonial like project of trying to understand the, these texts and incorporate a, a Hindu law? Was there a tradition of, of before that having that some sort of incorporation into law of Varna at some level? I, I can't think of the, the kind of, dif, of, of the kind of differentiation. I can't think of examples that are that I would say are verified historical examples where uh -huh. there's a lot of differentiation. But the texts themselves, of course, speak extensively right. about differential punishments and differential right. kinds of, of, of uh, um, you know, uh, fines and whatnot that are given to people based upon their social status and Varna status in particular. So um, I think we have to infer there that, it, that, there, that there likely were differentiations made in practice, um, but we don't have a lot of uh, on the ground evidence for it. So just to circle back briefly to your question about corporate groups, yeah, I love instances where the Dharma Shastras point to worlds of law that are separate from itself. And this is one of those areas where there's clearly a whole world of lawmaking and law enforcing that goes on um, external to the Dharma Shastra text that is acknowledged as legitimate within the Dharma Shastras, but is happening according to its own rules. Sure. And, um, and there I'm, I, I suspect that as uh, Dr. Oliver was saying a second ago, the you know, the, the, the evidence that we have from inscriptions and, and so forth tends to downplay a lot of the things that we've come to expect from Dharma Shastra, such that Varna and Jati and so forth are much less prominent in epigraphical sources than in 
um, Brahminical sources. Except maybe for, for just lip service. Often mm -hmm. the king is said to be the Varnashrama Dharma protector. Right? Alaka, right. Or How much, <laughs> what that yeah. meant is not said. <laughs> yeah. no, so, right. uh, so on that point, so I want to you know, go to the next topic. It's kind of like, what is Raja Dharman? And also what, you know, we talked about these corporate groups and what was the relationship between the state and these corporate groups, right? You know, like how did that play out? Um, either in the, in the text or what we know from, you know, actual on the ground evidence. Um, so I, I actually think it was, um, and this is my, you know, professor answer. I think it was pretty variable. That is mm -hmm. to say, I think there were places where there were very strong kings who had pretty um, extensive and uh, fairly well-managed administrative apparatuses. Um, and their corporate groups may have been more under the thumb of, of, of a particular ruler. Um, I think there are flip side examples where there were kings who were figureheads who were basically at the, at the mercy of powerful corporate groups who were operating in their domain. And, um, they had to do the, their best to placate those groups at every turn um, in order to make the, in, in order to try to retain their own position without being, right. you know, deposed or threatened or, um, or worse <laughs> at a personal level. So I think that the, the, there's variability there, right? So there were, there were um, oftentimes very weak kings in the state of Kerala or the region of Kerala where I've done some work. Um, and there, I think kings were desperate to hold on to some kind of, you know, some kind of power, and they needed either Brahmin communities or mercantile communities or temple um, authorities to support them in order to to hold on to their power. But then there are other places not so far away in Tamil Nadu, where um, some of the Chola kings, for example, seem to have had fairly uh, rigorous administrative um, systems in place for managing large-scale um, governmental projects of various kinds. And um, you don't do that without um, having some control over the corporate groups who are going to end up doing that work. And by corporate groups here, we can we can think of them as guilds, right? We're a collection. It's a of combination. People. So it might be military groups of various okay. kinds. It could be um, it could be ascetic communities. So that would be monastic communities mm -hmm. if you're thinking about Buddhists and Jains, but also muttas. Yeah. Some, in some places, right? If you think of the Shingeri Mata, for example, it has incredible uh, land holdings and vast, you know, um, yeah. power and land and, and wealth. Um, but then you're also thinking about um, um, so they're they're kind of mercantile associations of various kinds, the the five hundreds and the six hundreds, and uh, groups that show up in the inscriptions or the Anjuvanam and the Manigramams of South India. And yeah. these um, these communities are. Um, not guilds in the sense of people who are practicing um, a particular craft, right? So when we think of a guild, we think of the potters or the washers sure. or the, um, the, the, the leather workers or something like that. And th there were, those guilds were there too. Um, but then these mercantile communities are, are, ex exist independently of, of all of this. So it's, it's pretty diverse, actually, of the array of different kinds of corporate groups that would, that would be there. Um, there is one that our friend Tim Lubin has been working on, a uh, particular inscription, stone mm -hmm. inscription of uh, Vishnu Sena, a king. What is it? What about the sixth century, something like that? 592, five, I think. Five, yeah. okay, so sixth century uh, inscription, which is actually a set of rules that 
the king has approved by which this particular group could live. So the, there are obligations on the group and the obligations on the king. The right. king can do X, Y, and Z, and these people have to provide taxes, etc., to the king. Uh, so that there, that's an interesting example of uh, king approving special this this word that is used in the Dharma Shastras for these group law is called samaya. Right? So the samaya is what a what it falls under. Um, uh, so that Buddhist Vinaya, for example, would be a similar thing. So that they can impose the Buddhist Vinaya on the Buddhist monks. Uh, and the state recognizes that and does not intervene. Interesting. Um, you know, in, in that regard, so what do we know about the theory of Indian kingships in vis-a-vis -vis like European kingships, right? European kingships as a monarch or strong central power authority, what what kind of role did the government in, envisioned by the Shastras and, and then maybe how it really played out? I mean, as you, as you said, Doc, uh, Dr. Davis, it probably was all over the map, some strong kings, some weak kings. But what was the, the Dharma Shastra vision of what a king was? Was it supposed to be a strong central king or was it more administrator and kind of what was the idea within the Dharma Shastra tradition? Patrick, you should start this one. Me? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I, I think I think on the whole, <clears throat> the Mashastras um, subscribe to a to a vision of a king as almost divine, mm -hmm. the appointed. Uh, at least that's Manus that taking portions from the Lokapadas uh, created this this uh, entity. So it's a sacred uh, institution. So, um, but it does not deal with the reality of state administration, but right. an idealized view of kingship, right? Um, so that doesn't help us because you're asking a historical question and the answer coming from this is much more of, a, of an ideological statement of what a king sure. is, right, yeah. So I, I, I guess, I, I, let me narrow this down a little more. You know, there's also the, the parts of the Indian um, theory of kingship is kind of social contract, right? In at least the Mahabharata, they talk about the, the law of the fish, you know, the Matsunaya, where big fish eat small fish, therefore they go to a king to appoint, or a person to appoint him king. And that person was Manu in that, in, 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 the, in the Mahabharata tradition. But how does that play out to what, like Manu thinks about what kingship is in, within, within the, his, his version of kingship? Ami, uh, um, that view of kingship, the contractual view of kingship, occurs every now and then. For example, yeah. the, in the justification for taxes, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you, you pay taxes because the king, it's an insurance scheme, right? So he has to, uh, you, you pay taxes and he protects you, that kind of thing. But I don't know. Uh, done whether you can uh, sort of uh, add to this. I don't see that in the Raja section, chapter seven of Manu, where, where you would, it's much more of almost a divine nature of the king that is, that is brought out in, in, in that. Yeah, right. Uh, so that, at least in Manu, um, in, in other texts like Yanyavalkya, uh, deals less 
soul with the, with it's much more dealing with the king and his duties rather than what a king is or how he gets his authority or how mm -hmm. he exercises it yeah right so the classic points of reference are that a, you know a king is there to maintain the social orders mm -hmm. so the varnas and the ashramas and so it it's interesting because it circles back that that the texts provide for an institution the the institution of the king to secure that uh, core framework of Varnashrama Dharma that um, animates the Dharma Shastra from the beginning. Uh, but then the king is also said to be the protector of the people um, at, in, at every turn, right? That this is what the king's major duty is. The primary manifestation of that protection, though, in the Dharma Shastras has to do with the um, adjudication of disputes and the imp imposition of punishments of, of, of people who are either hurting other people or hurting the state. And right. so the, 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 the checking of the bad guys, the dushta nigraha is um, everywhere mentioned as, as, you know, this is why we have to have uh, trials and this is why we have to have punishments and the application of punishment is the way to secure stability, peace and prosperity for um, for a given state. And so it, at that point, then the king becomes the, um, the hatchet man for the, uh, for, for the uh, Brahmin agenda, right? That they need somebody to do the dirty work of the state and the, and the king is in that classic conception, the, um, the person who takes care of that for the benefit of all, including the Brahmin community and other, and other classes. But um, that I think is, sort of the, the, the classical framework of, of, of how this goes. This, is, this becomes rhetorical primarily um, at best yeah. in, in, in practical contexts. Um, I don't know that except as a kind of something you might learn along the way growing up, this ever really was the kind of motivational sure. factor for, um, and for actual Indian kings who I think operated from um, very human perspective. Yeah, the, yeah, the usual <laughs> power, thing. money, whatever, all that. Right, but you know they, but some of them were hereditary kings, and they were yeah. surely terrible administrators or terrible warriors, and you know, just like every other, um, every other place in the world, that politics makes things super messy. So, but I, I did find it interesting that the Indian conception of state power, in some sense, was based on force, right, Danda. Like it was really. I, I mean, maybe I maybe I haven't read enough of uh, European political theorists in many ways. I have, but I just don't remember right now. I, I didn't get that sense of power as being like the source of all all the the power of punishment, the rod of punishment being the source of state power, which is how we think about it a lot of, a lot of times today, right? When we talk about the power of the state to enforce punishments, to uh, to to protect our borders, or so on and so forth. It seemed to me it was it was a very somewhat realistic take on what the role of the state was. A monopoly of power, I guess, right? Yeah. Is what they talk about in terms of the state. Yeah. Um, and uh, in India, of course, you have two things, right? I was done talking about is uh, you have the, on the one hand, an ideological justification for the fact that this one guy is king and no one else, <laughs> right? You have to sort of, in, in Japan, they said that he's coming from, you know, the sun goddess, right? Right. Uh, heavenly mandate in China. Yeah. Uh, in India, you have, I think, two schools. One is the divine kingship yeah. school. And the other for which 
Buddhism contributed a lot. It's called Maha Sattama, I think, right? How did that go, Don? Maha Sammata. Sammata, not Sattama. <laughs> Maha Sammata, the great one who, for whom people have consented. Uh, uh, basically, the theory of, of creation uh, yeah. of society was that, you know, Matsyanyaya was there. Everybody right. was, you know, it was in chaos. So somebody had to come and impose order. And that's right. the thing. So I had these two, two competing theories of everything. And sometimes a little bit of both gets, you know, mixed together. together yeah. in, in, in practice, right. So, so Professor, uh, uh, Dr. Davis, you, you mentioned briefly again about like one of the important uh, roles of the king was the adjudication of trials and and so on. Um, you know, I, I was recently reading your article um, about principles and maxims within the Indian uh, context, where you know historically people thought that Indians or the Indian subcontinent didn't have like a system of uh, stare decisis or you know case law or any way to think about that. And and I think your work and and the field of people you quoted um, was very interesting to show that. It, they did, but it wasn't the what the way we think about it in Anglo-American traditions. It had its own tradition. Could you talk maybe a little bit about like what the legal systems of India, to your extent, uh, understanding kind of were and how they functioned? So um, the the kind of direction I was pointing to in that article was how does how does any legal system and in this case Hindu law grapple with a sense of the past in order to develop some continuity of legal rules over time. Right. Um, it doesn't make any sense at all that a, that, you know, um, a, a tradition would agree to, to adjudicate like cases differently. Right? <laughs> um, so, the, so they have to have some mechanism for ensuring some consistency of appl the application of the rules in uh, judicial context. And um, maxims, I think, was one way to do that in um, in Hindu law, um, but you know, perhaps not. Well, certainly not the only, and maybe not even the primary one. I have a feeling that the the, the domain of of achata that we've talked about before, which is a, a term that I see sh show up in lots of different contexts, mm -hmm. on, in in practical dated contexts, um, a lot. That this was the conceptual domain under which a lot of routinization of the law occurred such that it would be the customary practice of a particular desha um, to observe this and that procedure with regard to a crime, with regard to a, a civil dispute, with regard to boundary um, issues, whatever the uh, right. civil or criminal issue may be. And but, but what, we, what we don't have is a lot of detailed information about how people understood what the achata was in their, in their particular place. So the promulgation of the law side there becomes um, difficult to understand. Right. Um, and, but nevertheless, the, the way that it gets invoked in, in Kerala, at least, is they would, you would get convicted according to the desha, desha achara, <laughs> right? So they would say, you know, according to the law of our little region, our territory, the law of the land, we would say, yeah. this is what we did. Um, so that, I think, sets a, sets a kind of precedent that leaves a mark, and yeah. I, I know about it because it was written down um, and, and in some temple archives, 
but I don't think it was written down in this kind of systematized way that we find in the in the common law system as it develops in in England um, or you know any kind of registers like that. So that right. that you know that differentiation is a matter of degree rather than of of quality you know of, of like total differentiation. The, the Hindu law tradition is cognizant of its own past and is trying to develop some mechanisms for consistency, um, but that the, the way that that gets played out tends to be something that's a, a level beneath the texts as we see them. It's sure. happening. It's happening in vernacular. It's happening in regional languages. It's happening in word of mouth as it gets passed within communities, um, and we see attestations of that in the in the Dharma Shastras without the details that happen underneath. Now, how would a, like, for example, how would a, a trial have functioned or a case in, in Indian world? Like, it, it, to me, in, in the past, like, how do we have, we have a sense, like, you know, we, we do, have, we, we have a sense of how it worked in Rome, because they have, they have a lot of uh, documentation around this. And even in medieval period, when we look at the church, right, the church history explains how they have their back and forth. What was, what was, how did it work in India? <laughs> oh, do we know? So, I, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, no, I was, we do not know. I mean, we know the theory. Okay. There's a lot of theory. Um, I was asked to write a section on legal procedure mm -hmm. for a Cambridge comparative history of sure. Indian, of ancient law. It was very easy for me to do in terms of how the legal procedure is described. Sure. Whereas Akkadians and the Egyptians and the Chinese could bring cases how they were actually educated. Right. But they had no theory behind or the, the superstructure was not there, right? So you had the exact inversion in India. We have minute details about how to do the stuff, but nothing about how it was done. But Akkadians, and Chinese had all the case law. So we have that, I think. But one thing we, I want sort of maybe indicate as a possible stare decisis kind of thing is I think there was the, the judicial process, the people who are making decisions were at some level professionalized. They were professional people. We do not know how they were trained, where they came from, none of this. But there were people with names and titles who were appointed to that position. In the Arthashastra, which is the earliest document case of, of Indian law, we have, a, we have an office called Dharmastha. The third book of the Arthashastra is completely devoted to that person. Right? He was not just a judge, but also a justice of peace, meaning there are certain other civil functions he performed. Um, and in a court, had, had to have three dharmasthas together as a as a as a as a bench. Sure. So, which is interesting. So right. that they didn't trust one person to do the <laughs> three, right? Uh, but these were had a title. Uh, what training they had, we do not know. But when we come to the dharma shastra, dharmastha disappears. The word doesn't occur. And then you have something called Prad Vivaka, who probably was a guy who just presided over the thing. Uh, he was a Brahmin, 
but may not have not, not known them. But he has very interestingly three people whom English, in English people have called them assessors. In the Sanskrit, they call them sabhya. There were again three of them, just like the master, who were yeah. the people who were actually advising the people on the law and the facts of the case. Uh, so who were they? This, that, that. How were they? How did they know the precedents? Did they know how the court functioned over the years? Yeah. Did they have an oral tradition about how other courts managed? So this is the thing that we do not know anything about, right? But that there must have been something similar, uh, I think is most probable. Uh, there are tantalizing um, scraps of evidence about court cases that we find in um, what are called jayapatras, uh, documents of, you know, um, winning a court case. And but the, the but the truth is we have probably less than ten from any any uh, any part of India. Um, How old and, are these? Uh, well. Um, it's not very old, actually. Most of them are 18th century, mm -hmm. um, oftentimes the last quarter of the 18th century, which is also suspicious because the British are already in, um, in, in India by that point. We have Jayapatras from Indonesia, though, which is interesting. Um, and so why would something that's talked about in India be transported to Indonesia and leave a record there, but not back in, in India? Um, so we suspect that there must have been more Jayapatras, but why don't we have a few more of them? I mean, after all, a handful or 10 is very, very small. Yeah. Uh, just the sheer accidents of, of history would, should, should have left a bigger mark. So that makes one suspicious about how these things were actually conducted. Were, were Jayapatras, which are a critical part of the theory of judicial procedure um, implemented in courts? Um, if they were, how do you explain that we don't have very many? Um, and this is a this is a conundrum that I, I can't I can't answer, um, and you, you, you'll get the usual range of responses, right? Skeptics will say, well, this proves that Dharma Shastra was all you know fantasy, um, and then you'll get defenders who will say, well, you know, uh, India is a difficult climate, and you know yeah. <laughs> why would, why why would you keep you know this victory document for more than a generation or two? You only need it for a little while, and you know some reasonable explanations, but. Uh, um, it's just a tricky, um, it's tricky to get to the, the, the details of, of things. So most of the time when it comes to practical matters like this, um, you, have to, you, you have to read other sources between the lines. So I was mentioning some of these things about Kerala that I worked on for my dissertation long ago. And um, the, the reason we know about them is because there were little stories written in the temple archives about uh, property that came and, and went into the temple's coffers. And so when a certain person was executed for uh, committing a murder in the, in the village, the, the temple inherited his cloak and a silver vessel and some other things. Wow. And it's the record of, of the income that the temple had that, that, that they wrote the story down. You know, it's kind of like, why did we get this stuff? And we got it because he murdered somebody else here near, nearby. <laughs> And so it, they didn't mean to leave a record of, of the case, right? Right. But they did. They did it indirectly. Um, so it's it's a it's a peculiar um, set of circumstances that we wish desperately we knew more about because it's frustrating to deal with with only the theoretical side. Absolutely. Um, so I, you know, I know we have to go soon, but I just have a couple of questions left, and then we can close out. Um, so. 
for, for you, uh, Dr. Davis, what, so I loved your book, by the way, on um, business law and Dharma Shastra. And I thought it was fascinating um, that how you thought about, you know, break, you know, there is some information in the Dharma Shastras about how business should be conducted, but I love the idea that you brought it about, about being relationships. It was really about maintaining and producing relationships that can be fruitful. Can you talk a little bit about like that idea that, that, that you brought to the table? Sure. So the, um, I, I think the easiest way to do that is, is to contrast it with the alternative, which, which is to say that everything would be based on a contract. Right. Um, and so normally when we think about business relationships, we think these days about, well, what, you know, what does the contract say and what do we owe and what, right? So that, that kind of stipulation. And time and again in the, in the Dharma text, I think we, we see that um, uh, while contracts are certainly talked about and discussed in, in some detail, the, um, the underlying drive is, is, is constantly about ways in which um, the relationships between, between people need to supersede the contractual obligations that exist between them. So that, um, you know, the, of, of, of course, if a conflict arises, you may fall back on a contract as, as right. we would. Um, but um, in general, relationships were encouraged as the, the foundation for business transactions that we, you know, um, the, the, the proverbial handshake and the proverbial sort of uh, understanding and so forth were a much better way to organize a long-term and socially beneficial set of business practices than to do things in a, in a strictly kind of contractual way where everybody's trying to preserve their own. Um, and that, that, that I think speaks to the larger um, point that I tried to make in that book around the, the idea that um, profit is perfectly legitimate, but not at the expense of social good. Right. So that, that you know, laba can't, can't um, you know, degenerate into loba. And um, so profit can't become greed. Otherwise, uh, it's, it's not dharma anymore. And so it's that sense that virtue and relationships and connections have to be at the foundation of business for it to be righteous or dharmic, I think is, is really important one and may contain a, a lesson for us today. Yeah, and, you know, I, I actually took that to heart. It, so I started trying to think about in my business, you know, um, how can I bring that to the table instead of just being like, well, the contract says this, what, what is it that we're trying to achieve together? And how do we, how do we make that work? Even though one side made a breach, other side may have breached, whatever, to make that work that's going to be conducive for everyone around us. You know, it's, it's a very different, you know, being a former lawyer, you know, I was in cases where everyone would just be, you know, you broke the contract. I want you to pay me. But it was just constant like confrontation that kind yeah. of game made me get out of the law. Cause I was yeah. like, I, I don't want to keep fighting. Everything doesn't always have to be a fight. Um, yeah. And so I, I did appreciate that. I think that's something we could take to, to heart and, you know, think about in our, I hope you do more work like that, where you're trying to focus on like these um, areas that might impact us today, you know, the way you think about things. Yeah, I guess um, it goes to first principles, really, how yeah. you, you know, um, because it, there's always going to be irresolvable conflicts that have to Absolutely. have some kind of neutral way to adjudicate and solve. But short of that, there are often more reasonable um, relationship-centered um, resolutions that people uh, don't often want to explore these days for various reasons. 
Right. And, and um, uh, Dr. Olivelli, so I know you just worked on a book on Grahastashrama and kind of its, its uh, connections to early Indian thought. Um, would, could you talk uh, briefly about that? And then I have a question from someone um, when, when they found out I was talking to you guys that they wanted me to ask you, uh, particularly about this. So if you can. Yeah. Please. Well, first, it's not Grahastha Ashrama, just Grahastha. Oh, sorry, just Grahastha. That's, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. You're bringing in a different category there. Yeah, I apologize. Important, but, uh, um, well, I mean, this is something that was uh, discovered in the context of both uh, Professor Davies and I were editing this book on the history of Dharma Shastra. Yeah. Uh, there, and within that context, we asked uh, Professor <clears throat> Stephanie Jamison to do the section on the household within the, within the uh, Dharma Shastra tradition. So she being a philologist just went to say, okay, let me see whether, where the term grahastha comes from. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't find any. The term did not exist prior to the Dharma Shastras. So that's how this whole thing started. Uh, the earliest evidence we have for the term grahastha is the Prakrit inscriptions of Ashoka. Interesting. So, so that's where this whole book came into being. Um, and Grahastha really uh, is, in the Ashokan inscription, always contrasted to the Pravrajita. So it's interesting, Pravraj, the motion out, out, going away, to Grahastha, staying at home. So you have the stay at home and the gone forth being contrasted as two different but equally valid and holy, and that's important, holy, I could almost say ascetic mm -hmm. lifestyles. So you can understand how within the early Dharma Shastras, you find a grahastha, you said, everything is controlled. Yeah. Earlier, right? Yeah. From brushing your teeth to going to the <laughs> toilet, going, to, I mean, everything. every little detail, right? Uh, Dawn had this, interesting term in your book, right? What did you say? The, little... the theology of ordinary life. Yeah. <laughs> the little things, right? Uh, the dharma of little things, not God of little, small things. God of, small, right, yeah. uh, of little things. Um, and that's, I think, to a degree where we are coming from. The grahastha of the dharma shastra is a holy man. Yeah. It's almost fit in the context of the Bavarian uh, inner worldly asceticism. That's, that's what you're talking about. Uh, so I think that's where we came from and then gave me new insights into the origin of the Dharma Shastric genre of literature, which is yeah. new. Uh, and I think we are dealing here with the, with the theology, as Dan said, or the, the Shastra dealing with the Grahastha. Uh, within one formulation of this dichotomy between the going and the staying, yeah. is this theory, new theory, formulated by some Brahmins about the ashramas. Right? Um, if you look at the earliest articulation of this system in the Apastamba Dharma Sutra, uh -huh. it comes as an afterthought. He has finished his entire text. Yeah. And then at the very end, of the second uh, Prashna uh, book, um, it is sandwiched between the grahastha, which has been 
he's gone the entire book describing, and the Raja Dharma section yeah. that follows just just three sections or four sections. Within that, there's this little appendix almost on the ashramas, right? Uh, it sort of stays, remains outside the structure of his book. Um, so that's very, very interesting. So it's, a, it's, a, it's something new, something coming into the tradition. As I said, he uses the word AK all the time. Some people yeah, say yeah. This, this is the some people saying there are four ashramas, right? The kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so that is, I think, uh, where we get the theory of the grahastha within the Brahmanical tradition, at least within the Brahmanical tradition as represented by the Dharmashastras. Right. Because in the Brahmanical tradition, much larger. So in that sense, it makes sense that he talks principally about the Brahmanical grahastha. Interestingly, Apastamba does not use the word grahastha outside of the ashrama huh. section. He used the word graha medhin. Graha medha. Medha is a sacrifice. sacrifice. So house sacrifice. So it sort of connects more ritually to the Vedic tradition. Right. right. Um, and uh, so that's the, so within that you find, I think, uh, the reevaluation of what a stay-at-home grahastha lifestyle is. Of and for, we do not know from Ashoka whether the Grahastas were married or not. Right. Doesn't tell us that. Uh, but within the Dharma Shastra tradition, for the most part, they are married. Yeah. They're married, they have children, they have wife, they have an economic side of a life. But of course, you know, the Brahminical householders don't have an economic life. Right. Because their way of, of getting money is to teach, to officiate at sacrifices and to get gifts. Gifts. So yeah. all three, not sort of real world economic production, right? Sure. Not agriculture or anything like that. So they're, they're having a different kind of a, of a lifestyle. That's, that sounds fascinating. And I have it and I'm gonna read that book. Um, so I have one more question. This is from uh, a friend of mine for, for you, uh, uh, Dr. Olivelli. Um, he want, he, he's asking, what do you think of Louis Demont's work um, on the renowned service man in the world as undergirding many of the tensions and developments in Hindu thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we are going back to the mid-1960s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Before Don was born. So <laughs> maybe both of you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. um, yeah, so I was a great fan of Dumont uh, early in my career. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I, it's, it's not something that I deal with right now. Um, I think, you know, he comes from a structuralist anthropological background, you know, uh, uh, Levi Strauss and, and, you know, that, that, uh, that. Um, so, um, I, I don't think as of now, as my thinking, that he adds a lot to our understanding of the Indian religious history. Um, uh, and uh, his view of the man in the world versus the, you know, the world renouncer, 
the dichotomy there, the individualism and the, and the, and the sort of the lack of the individuality uh, on this side. Uh, it is interesting. Uh, it's it, interesting to think about, uh, but once you get into the nitty gritty, I'm not sure whether it stands um, the, the kinds of interactions that you find between the, the so-called world renouncer and society are much more integral. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I personally don't use Dumont very much. Uh, and especially I was disaffected with him a lot more uh, within the context of the Varna and caste, you know, the yeah. famous homo hierarchicus thing, yeah. which also he, he has a superstructure of Indian society and how everything fits in, which I think is, is wonderful on paper, but, uh, but doesn't, uh, doesn't give us that much yeah. more insight into how things actually were. I think I was a little more on AM uh, Howcart's uh view on that over Louis Dumont. Right, right. So, uh, but no, uh, you know, we could talk some more, but you know, I know you've taken so much of your time and, um, you know, I really appreciate it. Uh, do you both have any um, last uh, last thoughts or ideas and um, that you want to, you know, tell our viewers about any of these texts or anything you're working on or how they can reach you also? I guess I would just say that uh, the, you know, we need more people working on Dharma Shastra actually. It's a field that's so um, it's so incredibly rich, um, but there's a, a vanishingly small number of people who are really ready to put in the time to work on the tradition. And uh, there are there are places to study this tradition, and um, it will re it rewards um, it rewards study you know many fold. So I just want to send out a word out there to anybody who might be listening, uh, who's an undergraduate or early graduate student, that uh, think about Dharma Shastra as your field. For me, I think what I have learned over the last 50 years is that knowledge is so provisional. What I say today <laughs> is okay for the next maybe year or two. Uh, <laughs> new things will come. Uh, one chapter in that book of mine that you referred to, Grahastha, yeah. is basically revising my views expressed in the 1993 book on the ashrama system, because the Grahastha theory gave us a completely new lens to look at that whole thing, which yeah. I did not have at that time. So everything, you know, just like in, in physical sciences, right? right? Where new theories come, you know, every couple of years or less, uh, in our fields, not that quickly, but new theories come uh, and new ways of looking at, uh, at things come. And, and uh, so whatever we said today, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> you know, one finding can change it all. Absolutely. Yeah. So, th so thank you both for your time. And, you know, um, I hopefully at some point we can have you both on again. Um, Yamuna Tire Gayeti Vanamai